Welcome back to The Re-Education. This episode is a little bit of a placeholder because we are still finishing Church and Deep State Part 2. I promise it will be very good and it is coming along. But in the meantime, please enjoy this recent episode of fellow Nebulous podcast, Ink Stained Wretches, where I join Chris and Eliana to talk about great books, music, and movies having to do with journalism. I think it's a great episode, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the newsroom. You can bet you're right on time. To hear the latest bring you down. Step out to blow your mind. A thousand people died today by way of hook or crook. So now's the time to turn your head and read us with the Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwalt. I'm Eliana Johnson. And that was Welcome to the Newsroom by Lonnie Hewitt to open up this episode of Ink Stained Wretches. So you know that while we will probably talk about what's going right, what's going wrong and going right in the American news media today, that you are in store for something special. And that special thing, that special person is Eli Lake, who is here, uh, a journalist, a news. When I think of Eli, I think of a newsman. Uh, for sure, uh, a ink-stained wretch in spirit. Um, what accomplishments uh, should we, Eliana, highlight of Eli's? What would you? How would you like our audience to think of Eli? Crack, no pun intended. <laughs> crack, uh, crack, national security reporter. But I, w- I think in the past few years, its coverage of the FBI and national security establishment, um, and Russiagate. Oh, thank you. Plug and, and my. Podcast. I was going to say, as John Lovitz, my go-to source, as John Lovitz would say, plug away. Yeah, our nebulous colleague. Yes, um, the uh, re-education, which is um, there are a lot of historical deep dives. So if you're interested in the history of the American deep state, there's the latest one is called is about Frank Church's amazing uh, hearings that he had in 1975, and I did a two-parter on Bobby Kennedy and his enemies. Uh, We've covered all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, so I, I, I would recommend it. So after you're done listening to Engstein Wretches, please go and listen uh, to the re-education. Um, but, uh, Eli, we have brought you here for a special purpose. Yes. You, like Navin R. Johnson, have a special purpose. And that is that you are a culture vulture, a maven of, uh, of film, of TV, of books. You always have good recommendations. But today we're going to talk about what... Not the best is unfair because there's so much, but yeah. some favorites of ours uh, that are about uh, the news business and about journalism. And uh, let's why don't you start us off and we're going to play a clip uh, from one of your selections, which is a favorite of mine. Warning pain. profanity. <laughs> Lots <pain>. of profanity. <laughs> Colin will be busy on the bleeper today. Uh, OK, so let's let's hear from the paper. You just blew your chance to cover the world. Really? Well, guess f***ing what? I don't really f***ing care. You want to know f***ing why? Because I don't f***ing live in the f***ing world. I live in f***ing New York City. So go f*** yourself. (laughs) (laughs) That's the paper from 1993. Michael Keaton. uh, And I forget whether they say so in the movie, Eli. Uh, but he works pretty clearly at the New York Post or the yeah, New York it's, Daily it's like News. Yeah, it's like that's the New York Post versus the New York Times. And that's the New York Times. You can tell the guy is the worst uh, because he's wearing suspenders. You can tell that the other guy is is a villain uh, because he's wearing suspenders. Um, why do you love this? Why do you love this movie? Okay, so I think it's it's useful maybe to compare this to a late career Michael Keaton movie, which is called Spotlight, which is. Yes. Very much based on the terrific reporting from the Boston Globe as they uncovered the um, pedophilia scandal in the Catholic Church. That is a movie that takes itself so seriously. And yes. it's known for that famous scene where, like, they knew! They knew! And, like, it's like, oh, we're saving the world. What I love about the paper is that it captures this profane spirit of constant argument in a newsroom. Yes. Which is totally chaotic. And you don't know what's going to come next. There's a great scene that we didn't play there where Marissa Tomei, who is one of my favorites, who is about to give birth, 
And she's playing called, Michael Keaton's wife. Right, right. Playing Michael Keaton. She's also a reporter and she's called in. She's the only one who can get this, you know, can land this, get the story sort of taken care of. And she's just, everybody's yelling in the managing editor's office and she just says, oh my God, I miss this place because she was on maternity leave. And that is the spirit of a newsroom that I feel like we've lost because there's yes. so much sensitivity. People yelling at each other, cursing each other. It's, it's the least politically correct. And then the other great thing we have to mention is that before he becomes... George Costanza, Jason Alexander, yes, is in this movie as this sort of pure bureaucrat who, like, you know, one of the reporters, you know, he just loses it after this story. Um, and there's a scene where he has a gun. He's in the reporter bar, and it's a very scary moment. He goes, why did you do this to me? And the, uh, the Grandy Quaid, who's the journalist, just says, it was your turn. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, yeah. like, perfect. Isn't that perfect? Yes, that's... What I love about the movie, have you seen it, Eliana? Are you I familiar have, with it? Okay. I'm I'm not a big, I don't want to say I'm not a movie person. I will say I have not put in the time to be a movie person, much to my um, husband's chagrin. He is a huge movie person, as is my dad. And by the way, my husband the other day was talking to him about the podcast. Um, he was like, you talk about me on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what he gets for not listening. That's what he gets for not listening. Um, I, this movie came out when I was in college and I had, uh, already just been bitten with the newspaper bug. Uh, I had had my first job at a newspaper and I loved all of those things that you just described, Eli, about it. I loved the, uh, rank, raw familiarity of the newsroom. Yeah. I loved the, you know, we call the podcasting stained wretches for that very reason that there is a, 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 a wretched fraternity. Uh, of folks, and um, the villain in the movie is Glenn Close, as right. I recall, and she is the harbinger of the coming wave of fluffy, emotionally driven, floofball. Uh, I, I, uh, I, what was her name? Who was the book publisher? Well, she redeems herself in the end. Yes, she does. Well, don't right. give it away okay. in case right. they want to okay. watch. But she is the harbinger of the. Uh, what was the name of the uh, the she's a British woman? She was a. Uh, you mean Tina Brown? Tina Brown. Well, I like Tina. But Tina well, Brown I know was good I, to my career anyway. No, no, but my my point of yeah, a more personality driven, more of that instead yeah. of the pounding the pavement to go bring down the corrupt blah 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 blah. And she does do the right thing at the end because she wants to be an ink stained wretch, and not. Uh, a a poodle. Yeah, we don't want to ruin this plot because we really should go out and and rent it. All right, this is great. I have my assignments for the weekend. Yeah, yes, I mean, like right. it's a, it's a back. it's a good movie. I mean, the, but I chose it because, as I said, it was it's it doesn't take itself. There's there's a tendency in journalism movies and journalism literature. I, I agree. Where they're like, like so self. We're the most. It's like the Watergate style. Like, oh my God, you know, we're the only thing protecting the democracy. Democracy dies in the darkness. Yes. You know, that kind of thing. This, this, yes. And, and, it and this is the opposite of that. It's and it like, de definitely evoked some of the old spirit of movies like The Front Page and oh, other yeah. things in an, up, in an updated, uh, which also a movie that we will not make our list today, but I also love, which is Switching Channels with Burt Reynolds, which is based on the same thing, which is more of a farce, more of a comedy. Uh, but Michael Keaton, Pittsburgh's own, is great. Also, by the way, you should say Robert Duvall. Oh, you know, just perfect as the editor-in-chief. It's got it all. He tells this great story in the movie about, like, how he's having, like, a famous dinner with Picasso and nobody has enough money for the bill and Picasso draws a doodle and pays for it. <laughs> it's pretty great. It's like, it's, it's a really, it's good stuff. That's who you want as a publisher. Oh, that's great. Uh, okay, Eliana, you will now uh, all right, elevate. Like a yes, major. You will now um, elevate our discussion. Really shifting gears here. Um, mine is a favorite journalism book. Uh, which is Personal History by Catherine Graham. Which was, surprised me to hear did. from you. Yes. Why? I don't know. It's Catherine Graham. It's, I don't know. Tell us why. All right. Well, the book won the Pulitzer Prize. So my, many people, I'm sure, have read it. Um, but it is, so it's her autobiography, but it is actually a a history of journalism. Okay. Because her father bought the Washington Post and when he passed away, um, the paper was transferred to her husband, Phil Graham. And um, and when he committed suicide, it uh, landed in her lap. And and the post and the post was not what it the post it, was nothing. Right. Um, the post was nothing. And it's about her um, 
Her mother was a complete narcissist, and there's an unbelievable, um, I mean, when she was a kid, both her parents moved away for a period of years and left the four children in her family. Um, They were, she was a few months old, and the other kids were two, four, and six. They left them in New York and came to D.C. They left them, like, with a governess. She was essentially raised by a governess. Her mother was not loving, um, and she didn't have a lot of self-esteem. She then married Phil Graham, and the book, Um, She recounts how he ran her down um, and was emotionally abusive to her. So she um, got this paper and had no self-confidence in her ability to run it. And it is about how she gained the confidence and realization to run this paper incredibly capably. Um, But it's filled with anecdotes about um, the post in the 60s and 70s. And Pentagon uh, papers. it was a huge part of history. She and hires Ben Bradley, right? She hires Ben Bradley. And um, one of the most interesting things is that she meets Warren Buffett and she's very discreet, but it, it seems like there was a tryst between them. But they he were becomes lovers. They that um, he becomes a real mentor to her in terms of her management of the paper. But it is packed Warren with, Buffett. with Tag on. um with hilarious anecdotes. So it's a history of the country. It's a history of journalism. Um, and it is like a remarkable story about the unraveling of a marriage as well. Um, and I just wanted to read this paragraph because it's just a great example of um, about how closely intertwined reporters and politicians were. So they were very, very close. The, the Grams, Catherine and Phil, with the Kennedys. And she writes about um, essentially how Phil Graham was responsible for LBJ being on the Kennedy ticket. Kennedy did not want him on the ticket. No one ever wanted him anywhere. She writes, in fact, the president-elect, and that's Kennedy, called Joe, Joe Alsop, um, the columnist, about the liberals wanting Albert Gore, father of the Clinton administration vice president, Al Gore, for the position But he told Joe that he wanted Dylan, and that's Doug Dylan. Joe recalls Kennedy saying, they say if I take Doug Dylan, he won't be loyal because he's a Republican. Joe responded that it would be very hard to imagine a man less likely to be disloyal than Dylan. He also added, and if you take Albert Gore, you know perfectly well, A, he's incompetent. B, you'll never be able to hear yourself think he talks so much. C, when he isn't talking your ear off, he'll be telling the New York Times all. (laughs) And there's just... (laughs) <laughs> That's great. Lines like like that throughout the book. <laughs> so everyone should read it. It's a beautiful Wait, book. Side note, by the way, on LBJ <laughs> and uh, the 1960 ticket is a, you, you got to read Robert Kara's latest volume of the LBJ biography. But there's a great scene in how Bobby Kennedy, um, uh, Jack's brother, younger brother, was so against this idea that he did everything he could to sabotage it. And it was like running to try to persuade, like, Johnson's people that he shouldn't take it. And it was like, you know, the liberals, he was doing everything he could um, in that convention uh, to make it make sure it didn't happen. And, well, there's a funny part yeah. in here, um, too, where she, where, where Catherine Graham writes, um, she's talking to Bobby Kennedy and um, and says that Phil Graham, that LBJ is not, is angry with them and isn't speaking to Catherine Graham and Phil Graham. And, um, and Bobby Kennedy says to her, why Phil Graham's the reason that he, he's president, right? Right. Now. It's yeah. funny, right? <laughs> and yeah. the, the reason I would not, I have not read it would not be inclined to read it is because I find all of the patootie kissing of the Washington post and the hagiography of the, the, the Pentagon papers were a much more significant get than the Watergate. Oh. Thank you. I agree. Uh, it, you know what's more significant than that? Family Jewels by Hirsch. Most say, significant. Say that again. I would say the Family Jewels by Cy Hirsch, which is sort of forgotten in that trilogy of great stories in the early of the period, that's more important than Watergate and even the Pentagon Papers. Yeah. Cy Hirsch made things very complicated. Well, later, but I'm just saying he had the goods. In, <laughs> yeah. in 74, he had the goods. 74, he had the goods and the Pentagon Papers. But so do you find, I, I guess I will say, you you have a great BS detector. And if you like this book and you think it's you and you think that it's not. She's an amazing woman. And right. reading about her life and her um, <clears throat> her coming of age and her career is fast, totally fascinating. Um, 
the, I mean, Phil Graham um, became severely mentally ill and her writing about their relationship is fascinating. So I think as, as American history, but also just as a per, I mean, the book is called personal history. It's, it's fascinating, beautiful. Uh, the stuff about the post like is, is secondary to, to all of that. Um, and then I actually found the, one of the most interesting things to be what she writes about Warren Buffett and his role in well, I, the post. That, and and I ended go. up reading a biography of him that was fascinating. All so right. there are lots of different threads in it. Is she nice to Bradley? Um, she loves him, right? Yes, yes. Um, complimentary of Bradley. And all, but that's like the more hagiographical part. All of her I'm Washington right. socializing. Speaking of hagiography, mm. uh, you have teed up Eli's uh, next submission here, uh, of course, All the President's Men, which is the movie that um, sent a, a thousand, sent thousands of oh, yeah. young people in the 1970s into journalism because they thought that the people looked like Robert Redford. Spoiler alert, they don't. Uh, let's listen to this clip. You know, once when I was reporting, Lyndon Johnson's top guy gave me the word. They were looking for a successor for J. Edgar Hoover. I wrote it, and the day it appeared... Johnson held a press conference and appointed Hoover head of the FBI for life. When he was done, turned to his top guy and the president said, call Ben Bradley and tell him fuck you. <laughs> well, everybody said, you did it, Ben. You screwed up. You stuck us with Hoover forever. I screwed up, but I wasn't wrong. How much can you tell me about Deep Throat? How much do you need to know? You trust him? Yeah. I can't do the reporting for my reporters, which means I have to trust them. And I hate trusting anybody. Run that, baby. Run... Run that baby. Run that baby. Okay. Uh, Eli, why do you why do you love this movie? Well, I from we know a lot more about the history of Watergate and this story, and it's this is told very much from this kind of it's told like a morality play. Um so Deep Throat we now know is Mark Felt, who was the deputy director of the FBI, and he himself was a like in many ways a sinister deep state figure, much like Hoover, his mentor. That said, it does work really well in the genre of mid-70s sort of don't trust the government thrillers. I'm thinking about like Three Days of the Condor. I was just about to say, Robert Redford right. made a whole oeuvre of this. Exactly. Or like The Conversation. And these, and so these are, so it's a taut, exciting movie in that respect. And it is a taut... And, like, credit, you know, we were talking about this. We said this earlier about how, like, in my view, the Family Jewels scoop from Cy Hirsch is the more significant scoop of the three. The Pentagon tell, people, tell people about that. So the, who okay, aren't so with this it. is, by the way, uh, a big part of my latest podcast, which is uh, called Church and I Deep was State. wondering why this was so. Lug like, away. Yeah, <laughs> anyway, but let me explain. But I will say this the Family Jewels was an internal memorandum compiled by, if you can believe it, the CIA director uh, of all the times the CIA violated the law, which, as I say in my podcast, is a bit like asking your drug dealer for a receipt for that eight ball you just yeah, purchased. Yeah, right. Because the CIA exists outside of the law. So this is like the road, this is like the, the roadmap, the treasure map to all of the bad things the CIA did for 30 years. And Cy Hirsch pretty much got that. Um and broke it at the end of 1974. And that is what gave us the church committee hearings, which is the only time really that um, you, I would say that you really have that level of sort of unprecedented disclosure of what the intelligence community was doing uh, that they were trying to keep secret for, you know, 27 years. Okay, Eliana, surely you've seen all the president's men, even I you. Have seen, you have seen that. Have even seen you have seen even that. I have seen it. Give us, give it, uh, so as a film, as something to watch, uh, taken outside of history, how is it? I don't. It, it's fine. Um, I don't love the self-serious reporter movie. Um, I actually like Spotlight more. Oh. Hmm. 
counterintuitive take. Sure. I mean, it is. It, they, they do take themselves very seriously. And I, I do remember at one point, like, a colleague um, when I was a politico saying, like, don't you, don't you feel like we're on the side of the angels? Like, I've just never felt like my my decision to go into journalism, I always felt was very selfish. Like, I'm doing it because this is fun and I like it. Not yeah. because, not because, you know, like, I'm just as good as the person who's ladling soup at the soup kitchen. I don't feel and, that way and actually, And actually, the popularity of this film and the number of boomers that it sent into journalism uh, speaks to something that we've talked about before, which is the uh, some careers fall on the conservative attitude. If, if we are going to take Yuval Levin, peace be upon him, uh, about the concept of the world or his philosophy is divided into feelings of gratitude or feelings of um, uh, virtuous outrage. Mm. Uh, the journalism is in the virtuous outrage world of things that you are upset at. Uh, injustices in the world. Um, and it's very few people of the right are drawn to that for logical reasons. And then there's also selection bias inside the institutions themselves that choose against people from the right. But even before you get there, there's already the upstream thing, which is the people who want to go into journalism are people that, just as you say, want to be a force for good. And this movie certainly honors that concept of these two courageous young journalists who, again, in real life, do not look like these people, uh, but these two young journalists yeah, fighting anyone, the power. Yeah, uh, seen Carl Bernstein on MSNBC lately? Uh, sure. <laughs> you know, it's, com it's, com well, I, yeah, I it's just complicated. Say, the other thing is, and this is a, maybe a critique of it, though, I think it works very well as a movie. Yes, as a film, it's good. Yeah, but I would, I was sort of, when I was second sort of what you're saying in the sense, in, and just make a, a, a following point. The Watergate narrative is that a wicked president named Nixon right. corrupted the yeah, everything national cool security state. And that's why we had this, we had to have this extraordinary moment where he was forced to resign during the impeachment hearings. The reality is, and this is why I go back to the family jewels, and actually the Pentagon Papers it says the same point, yeah. is that there had been Republican and Democratic presidents going really back to Eisenhower that had done all kinds of things that the American people in the Congress didn't know about that were ranging from trying to assassinate foreign leaders like Fidel Castro to spying on American citizens without a warrant to any number of massive how abuses. About, how about bringing down the government of South Vietnam? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, the, yeah, the Diem regime. Yeah. And all of that, you know, and you have to understand the context here is that Ben Bradley is this brave editor who's willing to take on the White House, but he's also like one of the best friends of John F. Kennedy. He would help when he was yeah. when he was at Newsweek. Ben Bradley would help JFK write a speech in the evening right. and then go to work and direct people to cover it. Yeah, there you go. So, so the idea that like that Bradley is perceived, you know, and uh, is is shown to be like this great truth teller when only you know ten years before he was basically like a PR man for not, his good friend Jack Kennedy. Is problematic. Not to be not to be a Nixon apologist, but I'll just say that the concept <laughs> that everything was fine before '68 exactly. and then it all went to hell after that is wrong. And if you want to do extra bonus Inkstain Wretches uh, listeners, um, go look up some of the old columns by William Sapphire who worked for Nixon. Word. And he was a great. I think he provided a great kind of criticism of some of the Watergate coverage because his point was, what about Lyndon Johnson? What yeah. about Jack Kennedy? What and about these other guys? Not, not to, yeah. not, we, we, we have to move on, but I yeah. do think that the comparisons between Nixon and Trump speak to that same dynamic, that, yeah. that Republicans frustrated by what they saw as the unpunished corruption right. and media bias uh, tore in favor of the previous administration gave them license to do things that they wouldn't otherwise have countenanced. And I think that I think that is part of that story. And you really can't compare Nixon to Trump because Nixon was a much better planner and smarter and more well, and a better and, and, and a better person. Power yeah. better. It's just like a lot of things about Nixon. Like you just it, it's not the same. Right. Trump Nick is a is pure id and emotion and like Nick, Nixon could have contested the 1960 election and didn't. Exactly. Uh, OK. And now. We will go to a, another movie that this is one of my choices, and it's it is a great 
movie, but we're going to hear whether or not it's a good journalism movie, really. Let's listen here. Great Britain. This is more than Nixon ever sweated. Our own State Department was rocked, not only by the revelation, but from the highly unusual persistence of the state press corps. Nice time. <laughs> Martin Klein reports on the ruckus at Foggy Bottom. The State Department's... Just how noticeable is this? Breakdown at huh? ...was a swift and unusual public criticism of the Alliance. Are you hearing me? Do you have a big one? Oh, good, Susie. Hurry! And back. Will severely limit NATO's ability... Five, five seconds! Klein, State Department. Everything's fine, Aaron. A bomb exploded on a railroad bridge outside of Madras, India, sending a passenger train hurtling more than 200 feet down a mountain slope. Railway officials in New Delhi said the bomb had been wired to the suspension bridge and had been detonated by a 120 people were reported injured, at least 22 people dead. I wish I were one of them. I think the reason I chose uh, broadcast news uh, and Albert Brooks is in that scene in particular is because I have sweat so much on television in my life that uh, I kid you not that at the Democratic convention in 2016 in Philadelphia, where it was hotter than a boiled owl and they had us out in these awful gravel parking lots with uh, intense with air conditioning that doesn't work. Makeup artist packed my neck in ice and they taped bags of ice to my neck <laughs> on my carotid artery to try to bring my core temperature down. I was sweating so much. So I uh, this is a clip of um, Albert Brooks playing Aaron uh, in broadcast news. And he's finally gotten his shot to anchor the evening news. And I I feel like it's CBS. I, they don't say I, it's a, it's a it's a fake name network, but it feels like it's CBS News. Um, and he finally gets his shot, and he sweats through his shirt. You heard the guy. He sweats more than Nixon. They almost knock the back thing down, and it basically ends his career. And his career his career as an on-air person is ended in favor of William Hurt, who is not sweaty uh, and is very handsome, and but is no journalist. Eliana Johnson, have you seen this movie? No. No, we're in, we we're okay. We had one. We had you lost you. Um, this is a 1987 movie about um, the the pains of real journalism. Uh, in oh, if amusing ourselves to death was a movie, uh, this would have been this. This is a movie that speaks to the central premise uh, of uh, Neil Postman's book about how you can't uh, communicate and have information in a society with pretty people showing pretty pictures of things. And uh, it's I, I love it. Uh, Holly, uh, Holly Hunter is the I, I have known many Holly Hunters in my life. Uh, women, uh, you were a bit of a Holly Hunter for a brief period in your career, a smart woman working behind the scenes. Uh, lifting, right. uh, lifting everybody up to try to make uh, television possible. I don't think that's how anybody I worked with would describe <laughs> me, but I'm glad that you we'll, just, you we'll, would have we'll described give, me. We'll that give you way. credit for that. Okay, Eli. So the, the, the broadcast news is is um, it explores you might say the tension between broccoli and ice cream. Yes. In that, you know, the journalist wants you to eat your vegetables and learn about you know what happened at NATO headquarters. Right. And the demands of anything on television is that people have to be entertained and actually want to view it. And, and attractive. And attractive. And like and this and similar to the tension in the paper from 1994, this is something that people are dealing with in the late 80s and the 90s um, is this idea that, um, no, people don't want to read, you know, all this, you know, upsetting stuff about, you know, the blight of the cities and everything like that. Um, you know, people want, you know, good news and fun Profiles and things like that, and and as told we, to them by hot people. Told to them by hot people, exactly them. right. And, and the uh, I won't give away the ending of the movie, but William Hurt um, is a sort of a Chauncey the Gardener figure. He's so attractive. He he's people are reading into him. Yes, whatever they want him to be, and simply by being affable and pleasant, 
he, uh, and attractive. His career, he uh, experiences this meteoric rise. There's questions about ethics. There's great 1980s uh, wardrobe. The if you if you want good shoulder pads, yeah, the shoulder pads are are present. Uh, it's a movie that I like and is unlike. So there, uh, there's a Petrachevsky movie, Network, which is the dark side uh, of this. Um, and I saw Brian Cranston in the stage version. He the, he staged a version of Network. That's the Howard Beale. I'm right. mad as hell, and I'm not gonna take it anymore. Um, that's the that's the sinister version of this. Right. That's that's the darker version of this, and also would would have in a longer list would have certainly made our list. Uh, okay, Eliana, I know you've seen the next one because you picked it. Shattered glass. Oh, let's hear a little a touch. We're looking into a conference that was held here a couple Sundays ago. With computer hackers. You remember anything like that? Are you sure you're in the right building, sir? Yes, we're sure. Why is that? Buildings close on Sunday. All I know is I was here. The conference was right here. <laughs> That's why the wrestles only stayed a few minutes, okay? Because it was such a, a dumb place to squeeze into. So they, they went to a restaurant for dinner with some of Ian's hacker friends. Thank you. How many? Huh? People at the dinner, how many? Um, about ten, I think. Including me. You didn't even put on a jacket. Hyatt was there too? Yeah. Is it near here? Yeah, it's across the street. Good, let's cross the street. You know, I, I really don't like the way you're treating me, Chuck. It's like you won't even talk to me. This is the place. Yes. I didn't do anything wrong, okay? I, I didn't do anything wrong. You saw my notes. Everything was in there. I got tricked. I got fooled. I'm sorry. What are you being so mad for? It was 10 people. Yes. For dinner. Yes. They're closed at 3 on Sundays. Yeah, I, I know. I, I know. They almost didn't let us in. Okay, but it was a couple of minutes before our three, and Ian looked like he was about ready to cry, and so they said okay. But for dinner? You go in and ask him yourself, Chuck. Okay, go, go in and see if they would serve a party that came in at 2.58, and the answer would be yes, you because know, that's when we got here. The Forbes guys are gonna have all this too, yeah, and they're gonna I dig through the records wrong, at Chuck. that office building. Okay, I'm sure they have surveillance cameras, and they're gonna check them. I, I didn't do anything wrong, Chuck. I really wish you'd stop saying that. Steve. Come on, anyone can make a mistake. You know, this is not right, Chuck. Okay, I, I feel really attacked. And you're my editor, you're supposed to support me, and you're taking their word against mine? You're supposed to support me. A great movie, a great performance. Eliana Johnson, tell us about Shattered Glass and tell us about why you love it. Shattered Glass. It's based on a true story yeah. about Stephen Glass. And that's my friend. Was... That, that's that's a portrayal of my friend Chuck Lane of the yeah. Washington, now of the Washington Post, bringing down Stephen Glass. So it is based on Stephen Glass, who was a reporter in the 90s at the New Republic, um, but was uh, making up the sources and the content of his stories and was uncovered and his career unraveled. And it is a wonderful portrayal of that scandal. And it captures a period in which there were a handful of these things. Um, in the, the first, I think, was Stephen Glass at the New Republic. And then there was Jason, Jason Blair, Blair at the New York Times. And I think that was in the early Ruth Shalit at the um, New Republic. Ruth Shalit at the New, yes, at the New Republic. Although and, she wasn't a fabricator. She was a, a plagiarism. It was plagiarism. plagiarism. So I like it both because it is a wonderful story in and of itself and also captures this broader era where this stuff was happening. And we sort of all lived through it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was. Jason, Jason, Bla Jason Blair's uh, terminal uh, fabrication was about um, Jessica Lynch, the West Virginia girl, woman who was taken captive in Iraq. I it was about the stalker in Virgi the, the 
after 9-11 that started. Well, there, there was that, right. but what, right. the one that, that, that hit him under the waterline was that he had said of Jessica Lynch that he had gone to her home, hometown of Palestine, West Virginia, East, uh, oh, right. and described the tobacco fields across oh, yeah. the street, across the road from her home. And I grew up not very far from there, and I said, that's definitely not where you were, sir. And maybe he didn't know what tobacco fields look like, but the, so, Eli, I love this movie. By the way, it's a great it's a great movie. Why do, why do you like it? Well, I lived through it. I wrote for the New Republic shortly after the Stephen Glass period, and I kind of knew Stephen Glass through another friend. What? True true facts. He went to Georgetown Law School with one of my best friends from college. So I knew him through um, my friend from college. Who? What was he like? Well, you know, when you met him, you were just, it was, for me, I was, I was at the time, like, you know, was, I was writing for like inside uh, EPA. I was like a, a newsletter journalist. So you met him and you're like, I'm awed by how, uh, how fast he'd risen and how, how good his stuff was. Cause he was a very good writer, even though yeah. it wasn't true. And then he was kind of like a schlemiel. It was like, just sort of like this normal, you know, I can say this, I'm Jewish, he's Jewy guy. <laughs> Who kind of, you know, like he was very he's unfailingly polite and like, you know what I'm and, and a little off and quirky. And you're just look and I remember just being, how does this guy sleep? I mean, he just wrote something for George. Remember that? Oh yeah. He would write for like and then New was Republic. Was that the JFK Junior magazine? Yes. Yes. Okay. And you know, he was he was the to the toast of the town. And so he was so productive and you know, and his stuff was so interesting and funny and good. That there was this period before he was found out that you were just like almost resented him for his well, and this, talent. This, you know? and, and his most famous pieces uh, include monkey fishing, uh, which was a story about an island where people were fishing for monkeys and with this insane animal cruelty story that, that got all this attention. But it was about... I think it was about CPAC. Was, his, was that... Well, the big one... The big one was... Yeah, the big one was CPAC and it was about how... It was, he, he described what was, I guess, a, almost a, a rape... Yeah. With these very fratty, like young conservatives. And it was like hitting every erogenous zone for a liberal New Republic reader. Yep. This is confirming exactly what they think young Republicans are like. And the story was like made up. And the, the movie actually has this great scene where the former editor, Michael Kinsley, who great editor, great reporter. But, you know, all this stuff mainly happened under him, sadly. Yeah. And he's asking him about it and he kind of wriggles out of it. Yes. Because there was a question about it and he realized, oh, wait a second they rented these fridges they had in the suite instead of like, it was like this weird excuse. And the thing that I always remember about Stephen Glass is that Stephen Glass was in charge of fact-checking at the New Republic. It's a little bit like how Mark Felt was in charge of yeah. finding the leaker for Watergate when he was the leaker. Like, it's oh, like, it's, wow. it's one of those things. So you put himself in charge. So Stephen Glass was... Uh, so you mentioned George. Uh, I think of Mike Allen when he was at the Post. There, oh, was, yeah. a, there was a period, Eliana... In Washington, uh, in the 1990s and early aughts, about these wonderkin journalists, uh, Brill's content came out. There was yes. there 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 was this the in the dying days of print journalism. There was this uh, this flowering of these uber journalists who thought they were going to be in the next generation. And I love your selection because it points to what was to come. Right. All the all the the uh, Stephen Glass story, the Jason Blair story. Um, what was the uh, so the memo gate, Dan Rather and CBS. There was a series in that period of hard, big, deep, real hits against legacy news organizations. And remember who who exposed it? It was Forbes online. So it yep. was sort of like the online versus the print. The only other thing I would say is that after this scandal was all found out, I don't know if we could, everybody, well, he's still around, Dick Morris, who was the one oh of the Svengali's of Bill Clinton. That's a name I haven't heard in a long anyway, time. Anyway, Dick Morris said, you know what? The um, Jefferson I, Hotel's right around I the wanna, corner. I want to be, exactly, I want to <laughs> be, he's like, you know, um, it doesn't, he said something like, it doesn't detract from that he's a great writer and, you know, he should go into fiction and I'm happy to work with him. And Dick yeah. Morris was the one guy who wanted to work with Stephen Glass despite the scandal because he thought, I mean, he was obviously a great writer. Yeah. He was obviously a great writer. By the way, today he is a, um, he went to law school, but he still hasn't, you know, he's he's not in the bar. There but was he a works, big, yes, works. there was a big to-do about whether he, right. um, he had should repented get 
whether yeah. he should whether the bar should like license him. Right. And he but he's I think led an exemplary life. Yes, ever in since. many ways. He helps mm-hmm. people. You know, he's uh, so so that's a it's an interesting side note that it's not the final chapter. The 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 Scarlet the Scarlet Letter yeah has changed its meaning. Okay, another Eliana pick and another Eliana pick that surprised me. It did. Yeah, take it away. Why? Well, tell tell right. tell the people what you I, were working I feel, with. I felt actually uh, that mine were um, predictable in that there are a lot of people's favorites. But I don't think of you as a predictable. I, right. I think you as a my favorite um, book is "What It Takes" by Richard Ben Kramer, which is um, profiles of six, I believe it's six, of the primary candidates in the 1988 presidential election, and it is a doorstop of a book. Um, but the title, "What It Takes." Um, alludes to the fact that what this book is really about um, is is what kind of person is elected president? What mm-hmm. kind of person um, the metabolism, the drive um, it takes to <clears throat> make it through a presidential campaign in the modern era in this country? And so you read these profiles. It's Michael Dukakis, Gary Hart, George H.W. Bush, Joe Biden, um, which makes it relevant to today. Um, who who are the other two? Um, who am I missing? From what cycle? Um, 88. Bob uh, Dole. Bob Dole. Um, and there's one other. Bob Dole. You got George H.W. George H.W. Anyhow, um, it is... A wonderful book, and the thing that um, it is the antidote to the superficial, um, quick hit uh, horse race coverage that we do today. In that, this is a book that really tells you, like, the, it's like these, the opposite of game change. It is yes, yes. And, and it is the opposite of Politico and the right. opposite of this stuff. And it gets to it really does tell you something about who these people were. I was really struck when I read it that <clears throat> five of the six um, had had enormous personal tragedy in their lives. And yeah. I thought that said something about like the type of person that it took. So for Joe Biden, it was the death of his um, <clears throat> wife and young kids. For George H.W. Bush, he had lost a daughter um, early in his life. Um, for Michael Dukakis, you know, he had a mentally ill wife and I believe his brother committed suicide. Um, and uh, uh, um, they, there were events like these in all of their lives that um, that like cast a shadow over them. And my conclusion from reading it um, and I, it would have been interesting to talk to Kramer about it was that, you know, in the end, um H.W. becomes the victor on the Republican side. Dukakis is the nominee from the Democratic side. Was that like Dukakis was just too normal of a person um, that you can't be as normal as he was and win the presidency. And I do think that's kind of the note he concludes on Um, for the present day. I mean, the Biden stuff is wild. He is taken out by this plagiarism scandal. Um, He does not shut his mouth ever. And um, it is amusing. Um, and I also think there are parts um, that contrast to today because there was a line I pulled out about Biden that I want to pull up that um, that you can kind of see in his old age, like the veil slipping, that there were these parts that, that um, there's a line. Um, the whole thing would come down to character, Kramer wrote. One thing he knew, they would never take him apart on character, his basic honesty, his fabric as a man. And that is what I think is like being called into question right now with right. Biden that um, that never was 40 years ago, 50 years ago. So I highly recommend it. It's wonderfully written. And um, and the parts about Bob Dole, I mean, uh, Bob Dole and George H.W. Bush, like they're, they're the real American heroes and they're complicated people. Um, the way that Dole treated his first wife yep. was abominable when he came back from, John McCain uh, from can tell, World uh, War II. Yeah. And and he doesn't like these are not hagiographies, but he's still um, 
so admirable and, you know, a real hero. Like, I, I, I just love the book um, because it's complex. It's not um, it's it is not a slapdash work love, that's trying I, to caricature these people. I love the scene in it where they're talking about George H.W. Bush has an entire operation dedicated to just writing Christmas cards to his supporters. But it's like an industrial scale level of personal Christmas. It's so it's so cool. And those are the details that matter for people who choose to be to kind of like live in the arena, to be a, in, in the political life and the journalism to capture that. And as you say, it's not hagiography, but it's also not written in sort of, you know, takedown. It's not all corrupt backroom deals. It's not all, you know, sinister lobbyists, you know, buying the souls of these politicians. It doesn't fit that easy narrative. A lot of it is pretty mundane stuff, but he makes it brilliant I, I agree with you also richard bain kramer's daughter ruby uh very much in she's in the new york times now right i mean she was is it, oh is that her yeah yeah ruby oh. kramer is his uh, daughter post. or the post maybe. yeah yeah, huh. yeah. well I, I think as a political journalist uh i think it is a i think it's a good book i think that um it is the a psychological novel version of the making of the president yeah right um, which uh, uh, Teddy White uh, created this co concept of, with the making of the president in 1960, created the concept of the, of the, the in much paler imitations currently with books like Game Change uh, and others, where basically, and, and this, was a, this is, has been a cottage industry, which is journalists take their notebooks and barf them out into books about campaigns post fact like uh, the the very terrible game change uh where also you can if you bet right and you've covered the correct campaign yeah. with 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 more slobber that you can get more uh Richard Ben Kramer is not doing that here and one of the other things that Kramer's take uh, it's been a long time since I've read that book but one of the things that his take for me, speaks very powerfully to, which is that politicians, the professionalization of politics, what it took in 1988 was a will to do it. You had to have will to power. You had to have the willingness to do it, and it had to be substantially self-directed. There's so much outsourcing, and there's so much use of political professionals, and the... In, you talk about the industrial scope of George H.W. Bush's Christmas card writing operation. Yeah. The industry of politics now and the corporatization of how campaigns are run have taken the soul out of it. And it also has placed less emphasis on the quality and character of, of the people involved because it's less about it, it appears to be less about them and more about who you hire, which which team of 50 consultants do you have? One of the things that when I looked at that book, thinking about that book, how small the campaigns were in 1988 compared to what it is now. So also like the concept of retail politics. Yes. Versus it's all, you know, that's what he captures is that, you know, George H.W. Bush in the Reagan years has access to Air Force Two and he uses that to build his, you know, sort of, you know, his network that is going to. And it, into, it was right. such a big deal to. Yes. It's right. such a big deal to have that now. Journalists who cover politics, my friends, sometimes are drawn into politics. Sometimes reporters, David Axelrod, very sure. famously, Chicago Tribune reporter who ended up uh, as Barack Obama's Svengali or as his as his soothsayer anyway. Sure. Strobe Talbot. Strobe Talbot. Sometimes they they get sucked into. Have, Eliana, have you in your career ever been tempted to go work for a politician? I made the opposite. <laughs> I was like a volunteer on a campaign in 2008 and so moved in the opposite direction. All the King's Men is maybe my favorite book, period. Uh, Robert Penn Warren's first novel, Robert Penn Warren, a newspaper man himself uh, who would go on. Robert Penn Warren never wrote a book as good as this again um, in all of his years at Princeton. Uh, that uh, he he never could equal this. And it's the story of a guy named Jack Burden who is a reporter in Louisiana. And he goes to work for a man named Willie Stark. 
And the story that um, Robert Penn Warren is very loosely telling is the story of the kingfish, is the story of Huey Long. And it remains extraordinarily relevant. It, it's, it is as relevant today as it was then because it's dealing with populism, demagoguery, uh, corruption in the press, corruption in politics, and it's the old line establishment down on the coast versus the rednecks upstate. And actually, I guess this is set in Mississippi. I think he sets it in Mississippi instead of Louisiana, but it's about it's about Huey Long. Um, so I'll just read you a little passage. Yes, Lucy, you have to believe that. You have to believe that to live. I know that you must believe that, and I would not have and I would not have you believe otherwise. It must be that way, and I understand the fact. For you see, Lucy, I must believe that too. I must believe that Willie Stark was a great man. What happened to his greatness is not the question. Perhaps he spilled it on the ground the way you spill liquid when the bottle breaks. Perhaps he piled up his greatness and burned it in one great blaze in the dark like a bonfire, and then there wasn't anything but dark and the embers winking. Perhaps he could not tell his greatness from his ungreatness and got so mixed them together that what happened was adulterated and was lost. But he had it. I must believe that. Because I came to believe that, I came back to Burden's Landing. I did not come to believe it at the moment when I watched Sugar Boy mount the stairs from the basement hall of the public library or when Lucy Stark stood before me in the hall of that little paint-peeling White House in the country. But because of those things... And all of the other things which had happened, I came in the end to believe that. And believing that Willie Stark was a great man, I could think better of all other people and of myself. At the same time that I could more surely condemn myself. And it's the story of a newsman who at first is being cynical and very arch about this hick who is going to be the champion of the people and who says he's just one more, one more of these guys. And he turns and goes to work for Willie Stark and becomes part of the machine and realizes too late that whatever greatness was in him has been spent. And it is a powerful, for me, one of the, the things about our work is that we get to go to important places with important people we get to be in that world a lot, but we're not of that world. That's not our world. Um, and I have met a bunch of presidents, and I have gone to a bunch of places and done all of those things. But it is for me to remember as a journalist that that's not who I am. I am there, but I am not of that. And this, I think of this story a lot to remember the necessary adversarial professional or vocational distance that I have. Eliana, have you read this book? I have. Tell tell us what you think. You know, I feel like I have no memory and need to read it again. Um, Don't watch I, the Sean Penn movie. Whatever you I do. I have not seen the movie. You of can course watch, I haven't seen the movie. I haven't seen any of these You movies. can watch the 1940s um, Broderick Crawford movie is good, but um, do not watch the Sean Penn movie. So, of course, I haven't seen the movie. Okay. Um, but I don't really remember what I concluded of it and it made me want to read it again and it made me want to read both the, this makes me want to read both of these things again you've got to, you're gonna have a full bedside Eli yeah. what do you say well I love that passage that you just read at the end because it's not just that's that could apply to anybody who gets yep. caught up in a moment you know and they came in because of this the thought the person was great and then they it's exposed you you kind of think you know I think of somebody like uh I don't know. There's a lot of people who supported Trump, you know, you know, in the last yeah, seven years. Exactly. Who you could say the same thing about and they kind of like see through. And that is it's it's worth reading all the King's Men, because if you want an analog to Trump, it's not Nixon. It's probably Huey Long. I would say there's a little Jimmy Hoffa in there as well. for yes. Trump. And that this is this sort of explains it because you can't. The problem with the resistance coverage of Trump. And what all the King's Men accomplishes that that, you know, a thousand, you know, MSNBC segments could never do is that you can tell that Robert Penn Warren loved this man. Yes. And you get all of the reasons why that why the demagogue, why the person who was dangerous and in the end, you know, 
was was not a hero, but why people believed in him and how it happens. And that's how, how it, it and happens how, and how it happens. And that's why it's such a valuable book. What is almost a hundred years later? Right? When, when did when did all the Kingsmen come out? Nineteen nineteen forty six. Okay, so forty six, so eighty or so. Um, worth worth it for that because I think you can you can kind of dive back into it and learn a lot about the phenomenon of Trump. Um, because you know Huey Long was dealing with a in a world as FDR, and you know that there was vast inequalities of wealth. There was incredible deprivation and he was somebody who seriously wanted to fix that and standard oil did run louisiana yeah and there that's was, also and true yeah. I, I have written in in a book i've written about huey long i have a huey long i i, yeah. I grew into naturally a huey long obsession yeah. uh and the thing about i think you're a hundred percent right the thing that so much trump coverage the two things that so much trump coverage missed was that he was somehow a new create that we'd never we'd never seen this before <clears throat> We'd seen plenty of this before. Yes. Uh, number one. Number two. Why do they like him? Must be because they're racist or, or dumb or, or, or dumb. Looted. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. As, as 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 I joke yeah. many many times in West Virginia, uh, no one was able to eat their breakfast in a diner in peace for three years because there were reporters coming to interrupt <laughs> their biscuits and gravy to ask them whether it was bigotry or economic uncertainty that most made them vote for Donald Trump. Right. And I think I think this book is if you have not read it, if you have not read it recently, uh, it is elegantly, beautifully written. It, yes. it is written in a style that uh, that speaks to me. Oh, by the way, you I'm just reminded of a similar book. What? Which is a real book, which is a, a, a factually reported book. A.J. Liebling's The Earl of Louisiana, which if you have not read which is oh, I about, love Liebling. Well, then you and I haven't read it. I can't believe that. I, I should. I got to. Then it you, might, then you, between my friend. Between Meals is amazing. By the way. Yes, Between what? Meals is fantastic. But A.J. Liebling's Earl of Louisiana, which he wrote about Huey Long's brother's campaign for the governor, uh, when he, which began, campaign for re-election began when he was in insane asylum, uh, is just you're you're in for a treat. You yeah. you All you've right, got I'm one coming. You've got one guess. coming for you. Uh, now. After being in the Bayou Muck, yes. Uh, let us let us let us lift our heads up to one more movie, which is a favorite of mine. And I'm going to tell you in advance, it's corny, and I get that it's corny, and I understand that it's corny. But take a listen to this. Then your advice is to call the whole thing off. That's right. Oh, now, Mr. Palmer, I realize that Mr. Burns knows more about the law than I do, but I want to tell you some things about this case you don't know. I went into this thing believing nothing. I was skeptical. I figured Wecheck is using his mother to spring him. But I've changed my mind. This man is innocent, Mr. Palmer. I know that without any doubt. Now, it's true I haven't found Wanda Skutnik, but I want a chance to find her. I want a chance to get this guy out of jail. Now, if you call off this hearing, I'll never get that chance again. The bargain stands. Thank you, sir. Now, again... I'm a sucker for this kind of stuff. This is Jimmy Stewart uh, called Northside 777 uh, from 1948 based on a true story. I believe his name was McNeil, but a real live newspaper reporter in Chicago who freed a man who was uh, held for 99 years in prison for the murder of a uh, police officer in 1932 and... So I love Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart, I just, he can do no wrong. Uh, the the movie he made about the Strategic Air Command, I like. I, I have, I, I, I love Jimmy Stewart. But what I love about this movie, Eli, number one, it doesn't take, it. the newsroom energy is correct. The wisecracking, the, the disrespect, the uh, loving adversarial relationship between editor and reporter. And what, the movie does that I like is that Jimmy Stewart starts out skeptical and eventually becomes convinced. And what we don't see very much of anymore, or what we don't see enough of anymore, is skepticism, <laughs> right? We have a lot of belief. We have a lot of true believers. We have people who put it in the wrong order. But this is a movie about how a skeptical, hard-nosed reporter became convinced in this story and eventually became the advocate for this guy. Have you seen this movie? I didn't know who to believe, but after pounding the pavement and interviewing yes. people, it is Hunter's Cocaine. That's right. So. <laughs> exactly. You found the guy. Yeah. You found the right. guy. No, um, 
I have not seen it, and I want to see it for those for what you just said. I, I, I mean, I, I know Mr. Smith goes to Washington is the classic Jimmy. It's, Jimmy which is great, one. yeah. Um, but I like all movies about ink stained wretches, so this is going to be. I'm going to definitely check this one out. And I feel confident that I can say, Eliana, that you have not seen this movie. <laughs> you have not seen definitely not seen this movie. Call Northside seven seven seven. And by the way, Eli, it has a young Ben Garza oh. who plays WeCheck, the wrongfully convicted man. Uh, it's got lots of the, the story about the tension between profits, uh, circulation, telling the truth, doing right, doing wrong. It's got it all. And Jimmy Stewart's, I just, his neckties for me also always do it. The, be, the, the best wardrobe. Uh, okay. Uh, and it falls to you, Eli. Oh, to, I'm ending it. To take, it falls to you to take us out okay. with a book that I'm going to say in advance before you, before you say anything, is a favorite of mine. Uh, but... If you're going to read it, America, you should know that it was written in a different time, in a different culture, under different norms. Yes. This is a book from 1937. It's Evelyn, Evelyn Waugh's scoop. Evelyn is a man's name. Evelyn Waugh. Evelyn Waugh. Um, he's, he's, a, he's one of the great novelists of the 20th century. And this is probably his best book. It is about an accidental foreign correspondent by the name of William Boot, who was basically because of a case of mistaken identity, was selected by his newspaper, The Daily Beast. I am an alum of The Daily Beast and uh, that Tina Brown started, um, to cover a war in a fictional country of Ishmaelia, Ishmaelia, which I think is supposed to be Ethiopia. Abyssinia, yeah. yeah and, before, and, before, and before you do, um, uh, listeners will have already heard uh, in a recent episode uh, we talked to Andrew Sullivan, who also uh, was a uh, a survivor of that, a lover of this book. So yeah. you are you are you are in good company talking yeah. about the Angstein Wretches of Fleet Street. Okay, so this is it, it's so it's a very funny comic novel. It has a little bit of that Chauncey Gardner being there element because William Boot is so unbelievably clueless. The the the, the joke here is that William Boot is confused with this kind of hoity-toity policy analyst type who they originally thought that they wanted to send because the prime minister even reads him. And this, the, 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 the book starts off with this sort of like, you know, very upscale, um, you know, salon where they're discussing this war and what people think of it. And they're like, we've got to get this boot guy over there with the um, publisher and this guy named Lord Cooper um, after it was sort of recommended that, you know, even the prime minister reads this guy. And so this is the guy who, writes for the Daily Beast about gardening and doesn't know anything about Africa or anything at all. He's the countryside yes. uh, correspondent. He writes about the country life of the British it, nobility. Right. And he's a very simple man who doesn't understand any of this stuff. The, uh, and I can remember f uh, just from memory yeah. the, la the, the uh, Evelyn Waugh's fun that he had with the writing of this country. Uh, and the, the line began, feather footed through the plashy Ben. Yes, that's right. That's right. Came the uh, crested mole, crested vole. Yes. Okay, so here I want to just read um, a section. It's kind of towards the beginning of the book where he finally is meeting with the publisher of the Daily Beast, Lord Copper. And uh, I'm going to quote it here. This is the dialogue. This is now Lord Copper sort of explaining his assignment now to um, cover this war. Excellent. There are two invaluable rules for a special correspondent. Travel light and be prepared. Have nothing which, in a case of emergency, you cannot carry in your own hands. But remember that the unexpected always happens. Little things we take for granted at home, like he looked about him, seeking a happy example. The room, though spacious, was almost devoid of furniture. His eyes rested on a bust of Lady Cooper. That would not do. Then resourcefully, he said, like a coil of rope or a sheet of tin may save your life in the wilds. I should take some cleft sticks with you. Um, I remember Hitchcock, Sir Jocelyn Hitchcock, a man who used to work for me once. Smart enough fellow in his way, but limited. Very little historical backing. I remember him saying that in Africa, he always sent his dispatches in a cleft stick. Struck me as a very useful tip. Take plenty. With regard to policy, I expect you already have your own views. I never hamper my correspondence in any way. What the British public wants first, last, and all the time is news. Remember that the patriots are in the right and are going to win. The beast stands by them four square, but they must win quickly. The British public has no interest in a war which drags on indecisively. A few sharp victories, some conspicuous acts of personal bravery on the Patriot side, and a colorful entry into the capital. That is the beast policy for the war. <laughs> anyway, I love that because I have been in that situation. I have been a foreign correspondent. I have gone to cover war zones. 
And I have, I'm not going to mention any names, but I've had that conversation with very senior editor types that are saying the kind of coverage they'd like to see. And then like basically like laying out what the war would look like. Yeah, this would know? be great for us. It'd be great for circulation. Yeah. It'd be great for viewership. If you could just get yeah, the... like I, I just capture the dis, just capture the, you know, there's the disparate of all, you know, big bags of wheat with American flags on it and flies covering the faces of all these poor refugees. Get, yes. Give me all that. Right. Yeah. I, I want it all. And I love <laughs> one, one of my favorite, one of my favorite characters in this uh, book, a great book uh, is uh, I think uh, Salter is the name of right. his, of his major domo, the, the publisher's right hand man. Right. And Lord Copper is a buffoon. Uh, and a, a a a purchased nobleman who is using his press baron status to try to be a much more important person, and he keeps his toad with him. Uh, and you included it here in the passage. Uh, the the my favorite refrain in the book, up to a point. Yeah, Lord when Copper. he disagrees, he always says up to a point. Right? Up to a point. <laughs> if if Lord Copper said that the mood was made of green cheese, uh, Salter would say, well, up up to up, a up to point, point right? Lord Copper. Yes, quite. <laughs> Quite, but then, but then, not at all. Have you read this book, Eliana Johnson? No. Do you now? Do you want to? Yes. No. It'll take you an afternoon. It's 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 a really quick read. It's not. It, it's it, He's a great writer. I mean, and, and it's funny. And um, the only thing I would just say is, you know, um, sensitivity. Don't worry. I you don't, I, the warning's not for me. No. It's not for you. No. But for our listeners, we want people to know that we don't. This was condone, published in 1937, yes. and there are some. Some some words and expressions which we would never use today, uh, and I'll just leave it. And same for Juan Abyssinia, which is his yes. actual journalism from the field, and is quite so. Okay. Yes. Well, Elon, we can't thank you enough. Oh, thank you for being great, here. Great fun. You cannot. We cannot thank you enough. And uh, people should be listening to your podcast, which is excellent. Oh, thank you. And people should be following you where you go and what you do. Uh, and uh, we're going to go out today after we sign off with another song. You've blessed us with two songs yes. about it's journalism, classic. which I had not thought about. And you'll get to hear, uh, after Eliana takes us out, you're going to get to hear Sunday Papers by Joe Jackson. That is all the time we have for the best of <laughs> books and movies about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. And sign up for our newsletter at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media, produced by Colin Chicola. Do it. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review. This search for Wretches. You can read it in the Sunday papers. 